Welcome to Mamahood in Real Life with your hosts, Tierney and Alex. This is a space to share real life stories of mamahood, educate, and create a community supporting one another through this beautiful ride of motherhood. Today, we have joining us Darian Roberts, and she is an occupational therapist and lactation consultant, and we are very grateful to have her on the podcast to share her knowledge and experience with all of you. So Darian, welcome to Mamahood in Real Life. Thank you for having me. Excited to be Yeah, we're so excited that you're here, and we would love for you to share with our listeners and moms a little bit about who you are and what it is that you do. Yeah, of course. So um, I'm Darian. I currently, and I've been raised and grew up in Los Angeles, California. I did go to OT school in Chicago. I graduated in 2013 and I was like, so sure I was going to be a hand therapist. Like anyone in my cohort would have told you I was going to end up in hand therapy. Um, So I did my clinicals there. My first job out of school was in a private practice uh, hand therapy clinic. And um, then I decided to kind of transition to a more slower paced environment within a hospital setting. And then I got pregnant. (laughs) Well, skip some steps, you know, met my husband and things and (laughs) got pregnant. And on maternity leave, I was just like, I'm not going back to this hospital. (laughs) Like it was so much being being pregnant and like walking around the hospital because I had to float to like acute care, doing all the things. And um, so I was really trying to figure out like how I could like try to transition into this maternal health space as an occupational therapist. And so it kind of started off and learning more about like C-section recovery because my first born was um, a C-section, an emergency section. And then um, I trained as a postpartum doula because I wanted kind of the holistic aspect. I knew I was very much um, kind of familiar with the medical model of things, but I wanted to just kind of discover more of the holistic. And so from there, I went and did the CLEC program, which is at UC San Diego Extension. It's a 45-hour lactation credential, standing for lactation educator counselor. (laughs) It's a mouthful, but there's a ton of credentials within the lactation field. And with that, I did finally decide to pursue the full IBCLC credential, And so within that time, I was just doing contract work as an occupational therapist. And within 2020, I finally sat for the IBCLC. Um, It was a whole thing with the pandemic started, like a lot of the tests got pushed back and everything, but I made it, I'm here. And so currently now I run a private practice within Los Angeles. Um, I work a lot closely with um, home birth midwives. So a lot of my client clientele are very young babies. I also work with a lot of babies with oral restrictions, just kind of pulling in from the OT background, but I do kind of like to follow my clients throughout their journey. So I'll do starting solids and eventually weaning as well. Mm. Isn't it crazy how you know that becoming a mom and stepping into motherhood is going to impact you in a huge way, but we never really fully understand the way that it's going to impact us until we step into that like motherhood role, like until we actually have our baby here, because listening to you talk about like how it totally changed the trajectory of what you were doing within your career. It's just so cool to hear that. And I think it is so interesting because I, 
I do think a lot of us get impacted in all these ways that we don't foresee. Like we know it's going to be challenging to navigate being a mom in terms of like social calendars and like doing our own routines that we've always liked, but we don't always understand the impact that it's going to have on us as a whole and as a human and how we decide to show up in this world. And for you, I think it's really cool to hear your story of how it really changed what you're doing today and how you are now supporting all these other moms. So that's really cool to hear. So why do you, Darian, why do you think infant feeding is so important since you pivoted your career into this space um, and are continuing down that, even adding to your expertise currently? Uh, Well, feeding is, I mean, one of the ways that we have to sustain to live, right? And within specifically kind of like this maternal health space, Feeding is very closely tied to all of the postpartum mood disorders. Um, So mothers that have um, more difficulties feeding um, are more likely to experience various um, mood disorders in postpartum. And there's so much um, stigma within our culture about just how we feed our babies and, um, you know, different campaigns of what is best and things like that. And so I think it's important that all families find support and whatever they choose that works best for their lifestyle and their family and really taking that individualized approach. Um, sometimes I can find in the lactation field, there's just a lot of protocols. There's a protocol for thrush or this or that. And I, that's one of the pieces that I really like bringing from occupational therapy is we always look at a holistic approach. How is what's happening with the person, the environment, the actual occupation, right? The performance of the occupation, and then always looking at um, in this collaborative process, how this family is going to meet their goals and what's most important to them. So that's, you know, what I kind of center my practice around. I love hearing that because being a new mom, I, so my daughter's, um, 19 months now. Yeah. 19 months and navigating the infant feeding and the pressure that you feel stepping into that around specifically the pressure to breastfeed and navigating that was really, really challenging. And I love what you were talking about of it's really needs to be individualized support and coming back to collaborating with the mom that you're working with and figuring out what's going to be best for them, you know, looking at all the different angles because each baby's different. Each mom is different. Each journey is different. Everything. There's all these factors and those need to come into play when we're looking at infant feeding. And sometimes for some families, breastfeeding might not be the best answer because of, at least in my experience, I wasn't getting enough milk and I was like very stressed about it. And so my doctor and the lactation consultant was like, that's not going to help the situation that you're stressed about it. And so it was like, we were having all these discussions around breastfeeding. And I felt very grateful that I knew other moms that had also struggled, but had I not, I would have felt very defeated. And I would have felt like I had been failing. And instead I got the support, like you talked about, to make the decision around, 
I actually pumped. I like tried latching for six weeks, had her nipple shield, like all the, all the different things that was an experience in and of itself. And then I just made the decision, like what was going to be best for us was I was going to pump. And I didn't set myself up for like, I'm going to pump for a full year. I just did it until no longer it felt like this is what was best for our journey. And I think it's really cool to hear you talk about that because I think it is important for moms to realize that you don't know what you're going to, like the situation you're going to be in until you're in it. So allowing yourself to have some flexibility and working with a specialist is going to be really important and collaborating and figuring out what's best and most important and what you're looking for in that journey. Absolutely. (laughs) With, within that, I'm just curious, you know, how do moms navigate that pressure around breastfeeding and how do we start to help them feel empowered in their personal journeys with infant feeding? I think a lot of that is one being more open about, um, you know, your, everyone's journey and to show that there is so much variability, right? The more that, the more stories that we hear, the more we can really see that there is no normal. There is no, this is just how the trajectory goes and that every journey is so different. And I also find it very challenging sometimes um, just because I'm very empathetic that I will sit there with clients sometimes and she's just crying for 30 minutes, just about coming to terms about how the situation is going, how this didn't meet her you know, idea or expectations that she had in her head and how these two pictures just aren't matching up and really just kind of sitting there and holding the space. Cause it's not for me to necessarily tell her anything about, you know, this or that. Sometimes I will, um, you really just have to utilize your therapeutic use of self and sitting there holding the space and, um, really encouraging her that her, her worth is not tied to ounces (laughs) and that she is, you know, the chosen parent for this baby, like this baby that you grew and birthed is now here. Um, and that you are here to guide and to, you know, what, what example do we want to show our children of, um, resiliency and, you know, self-care, radical self-care of choosing decisions that work for us and our mental health. And so I find that um, one of really one of the most like um, humbling experiences was kind of how my business came, uh, business name came about, but I really do find it so humbling to be a mother and really sitting with other women in this journey of, you know, their infant feeding. Mm. I love what you're saying. You know, we're not tied to ounces because it is hard. And we, on one of our other episodes, we talked about with, within like your birth and your expectations with birth and how, when they're not met, it's this feeling of disappointment, or it's this feeling of failing if it didn't work out the way that you thought it would. And I think that there is a lot of similarity in the breastfeeding journey. Like if you go in and you are so dead set on, I'm going to breastfeed my child and it's going to go this way that we put so much pressure on ourselves. And then sometimes we also feel pressure from outside sources based upon other 
people's experiences. They like to put that on us. And it's really hard to separate the two and realize when we're feeling pressure from the external and when we're feeling internally and then trying to navigate all of that on top of being a new mom. And I think what you're talking about is so important of coming back to this example that we're setting for our children's radical self-care, right? At the end of the day, taking care of ourselves and showing our children that that is important in the long run, I think is what is needs to be top of mind. And I think it's really cool that more and more discussions around self-care for moms and taking those breaks and doing what you need to do for yourself. And we're trying, I feel as a society and a culture to lift those pressures up, but they're definitely still there. There's definitely a lot of, oh, well, you're going to breastfeed, right? And it's like, well, I don't know. And then you start to like get in your head. And I I just think it's really cool to hear that how you go about supporting moms. And I think hopefully more and more moms will hear and connect with someone like you to be there for them and show them that empathy that they really need in that journey. You know, it's interesting too, when you talk about like pressures outside of even just what we put on ourselves. I have one-year-old twins. And so about day one and a half in the hospital of realizing like after feeding them, then having to pump and like, when would I ever be able to do anything? Like when there's no time for anything, there was even, even the nurses who were so sympathetic, they're like, oh my gosh, like, yes, you have to, this is really hard. There was even still a little bit of the like, well, you know, sickness can be prevented or when you get a vaccine for COVID, like that can be passed down. Like all of there's still some, some of those pressures being put on you, even though they're saying like, actually, we totally understand um, the situation and how this isn't possible. So you talked a little bit about the impact of breastfeeding or infant feeding in general on mental health for moms. Do you have any tips of how to manage this? I think um, my best tip is managing expectations. Um, And I think equally at the top of the priority is finding support (laughs) and realizing that there's different levels of support. So um, maybe you just need to talk to a friend that had a, um, a good breastfeeding experience or a challenging breastfeeding experience. Maybe you just need to talk to peers, um, just read some more things to kind of start normalizing different experiences. Um, maybe it's talking to a, um, like a professional kind of peer counselor. So, you know, the different organizations for that, like La Leche League or Breastfeeding USA or something, or finding an IDCLC. Like if it's that level of support that you need, like finding the support um, and realizing that all professionals are don't have the same training, don't have the same values. We're all individuals, right? We all have our different approaches. So really um, taking the time to kind of talk to different professionals and finding the one that's going to fit with the support that you need. So really finding the support and um, managing expectations. And so I think um, you got to have like, you know, your come to Jesus moment with yourself about like, what do I, what do I need for me? Like to be the best parent to this child. Um, what do I feel like is a good compromise? Because breastfeeding is not just about 
you or just about the baby, it's about the dyad. And so at any point, if any piece is not matching up, then we need to readjust and see like, okay, well, how can we take what is here and move to our next step? Because this right here is not working. I love what you said too, about like really like looking for the right support and the right person. Cause it feels like, I don't know if it's just people that I've talked to, but the lactation consultants that, and not all of them certainly, but some of the ones that I've had friends talk about that are in the hospital, like when they have the baby almost add to the stress of everything that's happening at that time. Instead of thinking like, this isn't my only option. I can actually go out and find a lactation specialist that I can relate to and I and we're aligning on our values is really an important piece to it. I, when you were talking, I hadn't really thought about this a lot until recently when I was talking to some of my friends about therapy and what you were talking about is something that we all started talking about of sometimes people try therapy and they go in and the therapist and them just don't click. And so instead of like realizing like, oh, it was the therapist and I not clicking, they instantly are like, therapy is not for me. And I think that that is, there's something to be said about that. I think there are all different types of practitioners and specialists and people that you can work with. And so knowing if you need support, that it might not click with that person that you meet right away and that's okay. So then feel empowered to make the decision to go and look elsewhere. I think I, I, I switched OBs from who I had with my first to my second, because I felt like we just didn't really jive. And I think that that's okay. And moms need to feel empowered in recognizing when maybe this isn't the right connection, because you want to have a good relationship with the person that you're working with. Absolutely. And I would even take that a step further to even say that it's not just a lactation consultant. Like, it could be the pediatrician that you feel like is not listening to you about your concerns about your baby's weight gain or sleep or whatever. If um, I really focus on sleep, because there's a lot of, you know, pediatrician things and parents um, when it comes to sleep. But if anything that, you know, you jive with as a parent and your parenting philosophy does not match up with any practitioner that you're working with, you should know that you can always find someone else. You can always find a different pediatrician. You can always, um, it's funny because we think about it with school, right? If I didn't like that, this teacher or whatever, like I would, I would switch schools for my kids, but we don't think about it really in the healthcare system for some reason. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's almost like it feels scary to do, or like we can't, we can't do it, but, but you can. And those are relationships that you are I mean, your pediatrician, your OB, your lactation consultant, whoever it is that you're working with, that you might be working with them for a while and you want to have a good relationship with them and a good understanding and feel like you are getting what you need out of that um, person and their specialty, right? They went to school or they did a program for a long time so that they can support you. And so finding that right person is going to only benefit you. And so, I mean, it's kind of like, uh, I work in fitness. So I think it's like, you know, you, you go to a gym and it doesn't feel right. You don't keep going to that gym. You go somewhere else where 
it like lights you up and you leave and you feel like, yes, this is my space. And like, kind of want to have that feeling within your mother journey and the people that are there supporting you every step of the way. Well, and maybe it's Darian, Alex and I are both in Minnesota. And so maybe it's a Minnesotan thing, but people just like, don't want to hurt other people's feelings. So they don't want to stop a relationship where the professional might fully understand that if it doesn't work for both people, this isn't working. But uh, sometimes like as the mom or as the woman, or just as the customer, you're like, well, I have to keep going because I don't want them to wonder where, like, why are we stopping? Are we having to explain why I don't want to work with them anymore? But it's not personal. Definitely in LA, no one cares. <laughs> They're like, I will, I will find me a different person. <laughs> yeah. So maybe it's a little different in the Midwest. <laughs> But I mean, yeah, it, 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 Minnesota, where like the, you know, you go out to eat and there's like one chicken wing left and everyone's like, I don't want it. You have it. Even though like everybody wants it, that that's a total Minnesota thing. Um, but I do, I think a lot of moms feel that way of, I felt weird leaving my OB and then I thought about it. I was like, why do I feel weird? Like, this is a relationship that I want to feel like we're on the same page and like they get me and I have, so I asked my PT, my postpartum PT, like, do you have any OBs that you recommend that are a little bit more progressive within fitness and staying active during pregnancy? Because that's really important to me. And I want to have someone that I know I can go to, to talk about my questions and things and feel really empowered in that journey. And she gave me a recommendation and that was super helpful, but I was so nervous to like make that switch, but I put a lot of time in trying to find an OB in the first place. And it's like, if I didn't feel like it was the right fit, it's okay to make that switch. So I think this is a good, it's a good topic to come out of it because sometimes you don't even realize there are probably other people that feel that way. And they also are wondering how to navigate that, but it's okay. Like you got to do what's best for you. And I think that's kind of like the underlying thing here is it's, it's an individualized experience. So kind of tying with all of this is when does a mama know when it's time to reach out and connect and work with a lactation consultant and when they do, what can they expect in that experience and consultation? Right. So this is, it will vary a little bit, but I feel like anytime that a mom feels unsure, that's warrant to reach out to someone because um, doubt goes a long way and it very much has that snowball effect. And so um, I think starting with, um, you know, just normalizing like, well, should they be pooping this much and peeing this much? How do I know if they're getting enough? Um, That's really just um, normal uh, breastfeeding type education, which something like a a lactation counselor, so a CLC or maybe a CBS, which is a certified breastfeeding specialist or a certified lactation educator, something that's like one of those 45 hour-ish credentials, perfect question for them or a perfect question for your La Leche League leader or your Breastfeeding USA counselor or your WIC peer counselor those types of questions there. Um, So an IBCLC, so the International Board Certified Lactation Consultant, is when you know something is wrong, 
such as maybe you have um, damaged nipples. So technically that is a wound and it needs to be treated, right? Or if baby is um, not gaining sufficient weight, um, if there's like reflux, uh, severe reflux or allergies, um, infections, such as like a mastitis, which is an infection or, or thrush or um, something that warrants a little more um, in-depth type assessment, that's really when you should reach out to an IBCLC. And um, that also kind of varies what that looks like, what setting you're in. So if this is an IBCLC at your outpatient clinic at a hospital, um, that might look a little different than if the lactation consultant is coming to your home. But generally, there's some form of um, intake and assessment about the birth to delivery. We have to look at many different factors um, from the baby side and from the mom side to see like where in this perfect storm is something throwing it off, right? So there's a lot of um, intake and assessment that we have to do. And really, we're just being really good detectives and knowing where to look about certain things that could be tipping something off. Um, but generally, there's that intake. Um, we're going to watch the feed, whether that's, um, so for me personally, I will watch a breastfeeding session. I will watch you bottle feed your baby. I will watch you pump. I will watch you prepare the formula. Whatever you're doing, I want to see. So that way I can make sure, like, is this, um, is this appropriate? Do we need to make some modifications? Um, there's the pre and post weight feed. So that's one of the object objective ways we can see how much the baby is transferring. Um, that's where we weigh the baby, you breastfeed the baby, we weigh the baby again on a very sensitive, expensive scale. <laughs> and then um, usually after that, there's some kind of care plan, care plan put in place. So this is what I found in my detective work. This is how I think, you know, we can remedy these situations based on what you told me about what your goals are. And then um, some follow-up and some check-in after that to make sure like, hey, is the plan still working? Um, do there, is there need to be modification? Because there's, there's I don't know the, the, um, the phrase, there's more than one way to whatever it is, but there's more than one way to do something. So if this way isn't working, don't like ghost me, like we can find another way to make this work. And so just know that it's an ongoing and collaborative back and forth process between you and your lactation consultant. I wanted to loop back when you're talking about the mastitis and thrush and I, I actually got mastitis. It was the worst thing ever. Um, and I didn't know, like, I didn't know a lot about it. And I would, I just feel like it's one of those things you don't know a lot about it. And then all of a sudden you're breastfeeding and you're just like in that fog kind of a newborn stage. And then when it happens, you don't really know what's going on and you're like hitting up Google. So I'm just curious, could you tell, talk a little bit more about mastitis, what it is, if there's ways to prevent it from happening, um, things like that, because I think, you know, for me, I felt like I was like getting up and pumping enough and I may have not been, I don't know. And so I'm just like curious, like, how do we help moms be more informed about that? Yeah. So mastitis just by definition is a, um, it's inflammation and infection of the breast tissue. So how that could happen could be from multiple ways. So usually it's from, um, milk sitting in the breast for too long, right? So usually there's, there's some signs beforehand, like you're just engorged. So you feel full and your breasts are firm. 
right? And then maybe you might have some plug ducts. So that's where the, the fat kind of emulsifies out of the milk and basically clogs the pipes, right? Um, and then, so the milk is still sitting there, right? Because now either it was engorged or there's plug ducts and now the breast tissue is inflamed. And so sometimes you can uh, remedy that with some heat to the breast, some rest, um, staying hydrated. And sometimes it, that doesn't work. And there's, um, there are homeopathy kind of remedies for this. Um, and then there's antibiotics. Um, but what I see more commonly from mastitis is that there was a poor latch. So the mom had damaged nipples and maybe she didn't know how open the wound actually was. And it's a bacterial infection because the, there was no wound healing because the latch was never corrected. So it was still just being reopened possibly. And now over time, you know, maybe those milk pads that's supposed to soak up milk have been sitting there for too long. And now it's feeding back bacteria into that nipple, then further into the breast. So I've kind of seen both ways just from, Hey, maybe I just wanted to sleep through the night and, you know, that engorgement kind of got the best of me and it escalated very quickly. And then I've seen the other side of bacterial infection. Yeah. I, so when you say like a plug duct or a clog duct for someone that like, doesn't know, like, how can they, like, you kind of feel it there and you know, when it's coming. And so for me, when I like, was like, Oh God, this is a plug duct. I was mess. I messaged Journey just now. I was like, I literally hung my boobs into a bowl of water to try and like, I was like, we got to get something going or this is not going to be good. Like I, my husband came into the kitchen. He's like, what the heck are you doing right now? My shirt's off. And I'm like, literally like hunched into this bowl, topless, my boobs just hanging there trying to figure it out. And I have since found that there are products that are like boob warmers you can use, which I would definitely steer people towards. <laughs> They're not expensive either. <laughs> no, I, I didn't know. I didn't know. It was just like, all of a sudden I was like, oh no, this does not feel good. Something's happening. And I like took to Google and it's like, hang your boobs, put your boobs in a bowl of water. And I was like, how, what? How do you even do that? And I'm like awkwardly over the kitchen table. So I'm really hoping to not experience that and hopefully hopefully I'm helping anyone that's listening like there are warmers you can purchase Alex Free- you can have mine if you haven't had any yet I didn't I only needed they're like ice and warmers don't worry I'm sure Darian will talk about them for me I had started the process and then I stopped and switched to formula so early on so I I was like in so much pain in the first week because at the doctor was like okay now you cannot touch your boobs until it goes away. Like in the shower, she's like, can't even let water run down it because then it'll go away the fastest and ice it like every two hours. So that's what I did. It did go away in like three days, but it was so painful. Uh, yeah, it, it's an, it's an experience, but I, I just like when the mastitis came on, I was like, I got chills really bad. And I was like, what's happening? And I, went online and I'm like, mm, I'm pretty sure I have this and called my doctor and my poor husband had to drive like an hour to a 24 hour pharmacy because it was in the middle of the night to get me antibiotics. But it was just like, 
when you're in it, you're like, what's going on? And you're already trying to like figure out so many things. So I think the more that we can talk about these possibilities ahead of time, it's really helpful for people. And I know one more thing that I'm curious about. And as we like transition to the next question of bottles, but I'm curious within latching, if you're having a hard time latching, some of the terms that I didn't really know about were um, tongue ties and different things like that, that I had no idea was even something to consider, something to have looked at. So how, if you're a mom navigating that breastfeeding journey, I think that that's something a lot of women don't even know about to seek help on. And, you know, what are some of the signs that maybe there is a tie, some sort of tie happening here? Oh, tongue ties are really tough because there's not a lot of um, solidarity within the um, medical profession. Uh, so you will see pediatricians that say like, oh, no, there's no such thing as tongue ties. And others um, are a little more supportive and open. And um, so basically what I like to frame it as is that, um, that we have a, there is normal variants of oral anatomy. There is a piece so connective tissue fascia underneath the front in every baby. So the presence of a frenulum does not mean that your baby has a tongue tie, but we're looking at what the anatomy looks like and we have to pair it with what the function, like is the baby able to efficiently feed and function with um, their given oral anatomy, right? So if you are doing everything with trying to fix the latch, but you're still, um, some of the tail signs would be like, you hear clicking when your baby's nursing, like you hear this clicking sound. Um, that's literally like the tongue kind of losing suction. Um, there could be issues with weight gain, um, that lipstick shaped nipple that is not being fixed with regular, you know, latching techniques. There's a whole slew of symptoms that you can see in either the mom or the baby, but really to be comprehensive about it, we should be looking at what does the oral anatomy look like? Is this baby efficiently feeding or are they only transferring like half of an ounce in 40 minutes, right? So that's not very efficient. And then what symptoms are we seeing? And with that, um, finding the correct, remember this, the correct support system with the available skills that you need um, so whether that be um, your your pediatrician, um, luckily in LA, we do have a, um, a wide variety of providers. So there are some pediatricians that will do a tongue tie release. Um, there's obviously dentists that do tongue tie release. Um, there's ENT, so that you're no throat doctor. So just kind of depending on what resources you have in your area. Um, if you want to know more about it, there's a good book by Richard Baxter called Tongue Tied, and it's a collaborative book by a bunch of different professionals that kind of talk about the implications of tongue tie from different perspectives and how um, to manage those. Thanks for recommending that book too, because I think if you are listening to this and are trying to figure out how much you need to advocate for yourself in this area, that might be a really helpful resource um, to figure out you know, what the next step or even how to talk about it. So you mentioned a little bit about, you know, when you work with clients, you not only work with breastfeeding, but you also monitor um, bottle feeding, whether that's formula or pumping. 
And uh, we know that you talk a little bit on your Instagram about bottle refusal. Will you talk a little bit about what bottle refusal is? So some signs of it for moms to see, um, you know, is that what's an issue right now happening with their baby? And what are some preventions for it? Yeah. So um, normally when I'm talking about bottle refusal, it's the baby that's um, pretty much exclusively nursing at the, at this point. And then at some point, maybe something happens. So mom wants to, um, leave the baby for more than that three hour period, or maybe that four hour period. So whether it just be to have time for herself, maybe she wants to leave the house and go do something, um, maybe going back to school or to work. And now all of a sudden they want to introduce the bottle. And that's where a bottle refusal will usually come in because, um, when we're, when the baby gets old enough, so usually around this two month mark, the, the actual suckle reflex starts to integrate. And what that means is that that movement is no longer a reflex, but it is more of a volitional movement. So the baby will suck on something if they want to, like they have control over this movement. And so at that time, if the baby has been exclusively nursing, and you now you want to introduce the bottle, the baby's going to be like, no, I don't want this. <laughs> like, give me the goods. I know what I want. And um, that's where um, you'll see a lot of times you'll see the strategies of like, well, just have um, have the partner do it or have um, just have the mom leave and let the baby cry and eventually they'll feed. Um, I don't know about any other moms, but I would not personally take that as a good strategy for my own child. And so really, if I I always counsel my clients that if you know you want to provide a bottle to your baby ever, like ever, 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 (laughs) even if just for the occasional date night or on occasion, if you know you ever want to use it, you have to introduce it early. And for me and for my clients, I recommend usually around that three week mark. And so you have to introduce it. It doesn't mean that it has to be, it has to replace every feed. It could be just an ounce in the bottle, but they have to realize and associate that this is a, um, a mechanism and a, a way of also receiving nutrition alternate of the breast. And so not only do they have to introduce it early, you then have to consistently keep, keep it active in the baby's routine. So either that's, um, you know, a bottle a day, a bottle every other day. And again, it doesn't have to be a full feed. So you don't have to worry about like this triple feeding thing of like, I just fed my baby. Now I have to pump all this milk to be able to give a bottle. No, it can be a half an ounce. It can be an ounce, whatever you can manage in the bottle. So that way it can, the baby can have consistent practice to give it. That's super helpful. Cause I think you, I mean, all of the things that we're talking about, because you don't realize that there's this potential that you're going to be stuck, not being able to transition you know, you don't, you don't realize where there's going to be those sticky points. And so the more you can learn about it and hear people talk about it, it just helps set you up for success into those transitions. And within transitions, one of the other ones is obviously at some point your child will start to have solids. And I'm curious, how long should mamas breastfeed or use formula after they introduce solids? Right. So the current recommendation is that it's still either breast milk or formula is the main source of nutrition until age one. So even though you're introducing um, a lot of um, solid food, potentially around that six month mark, which it should be around that time, not necessarily sooner, 
but around that time, um, it's more for flavors and to kind of um, replace, uh, supplement some of the iron um, from the store, from the baby stores that are now like depleted and that, you know, it's here nor there, whether breast milk has enough iron formula does obviously, cause it's fortified with iron. Right. But it's still the main source of nutrition until the age of one. So we we're thinking about that is still the main quote unquote meal for the baby. And then you're gradually introducing and playing the scale of, okay, well, if I actually want my baby to start taking more solid food, they have to actually feel hungry, right? And to do that, you have to back off of the milk so they can feel hungry and they will have more food. So between that six to 12 month time, we're really thinking about gradually decreasing milk and gradually increasing the solid food. And so sometimes for some babies, that's not at the 12 month mark. You know, some babies aren't on the the three meals a day with the snacks until maybe like 16 months or 18 months, or they could still be nursing until however long that, you know, that pair chooses to. So um, I'm personally still nursing a, I don't know how old she is. She turns two in November, but like she still nurses all the freaking time. And sometimes it'll be days where she wants to eat meals all day and she will barely nurse. And it's other days where she'll nurse all day and she barely wants to eat. So it's really just finding what works for you. And again, what works for you, your family, your pair, but just know that eventually it has to be um, a decrease of milk. So that way an increase of solid food. So within that, when a mom is ready to start to wean from breastfeeding or pumping, what does that experience look like? And how do you go about that? Because that was a really hard thing for me to figure out how do I do this? How do I not get mastitis again when doing it? And what's the best way to approach it? Um, So I'd love to hear kind of your thoughts and insight in that. Yeah. So, um, my, my approach usually to weaning will be more of a a gradual approach because one that could be, um, a little bit easier on the the baby, regardless of the age, if it's more gradual. Um, so if you're trying to do like a, a rapid weaning kind of situation where maybe you're switching formula, um, early on. So, you know, like that one month, two months, something like that that can look a little different from weaning than weaning a a toddler, right? Um, So we wanna always think of two things. So one, how is the baby gonna take it? And what is the alternate to the milk that the baby's getting? Like, are they easily accepting that other form of nutrition or are you still trying to figure things out, right? So if you're still trying to figure out which formula works for your baby, um, rapid wean, I I still wouldn't recommend a rapid weaning, right? Because we have to make sure that the baby's not going to be excessively uncomfortable. And for a toddler, if your toddler is re- refusing solid food, um, you need to find something that's going to um, help kind of ease that transition off of the milk, right? So I'm always looking at baby's comfort level and then two, also mom's comfort level. So the mother, the, the mother that's trying to do an earlier weaning is going to have a higher volume of milk supply, right? So we have to manage that a little better. So I'm thinking about breast comfort, like, okay, so how do we gradually taper off her supply 
So that way she doesn't end up engorged or with mastitis versus the mother that um, is trying to wean a toddler where the volume of the milk is not that, um, not as large as a newer baby. So we can manage that a little better. And her body is a little more regulated with the flows of um, longer periods of time between feedings, right? So um, we're looking at what can the baby really tolerate? Because especially depending on the age, I'll just kind of focus on toddler for right now. You can see regressions such as um, you'll see like another spout of separation anxiety potentially. Um, so there'll be more clingy. Um, if you're at that age, you could see like a, um, a uh, not a revision, um, reverting of potty training. So it's just finding more ways like that. And then for breast comfort, you always want to think about just continuously moving some milk. So the milk never sits, but you have to own, it's a, it's a fine game. We have to play of just taking off just enough. So that way you're comfortable and it's not, um, tender or things like that. But if you take off more milk, your body's just going to say, Hey, replace that milk. Right. So we have to take off as little as possible over time to gradually kind of, um, decrease that. I mean, you can try some tricks like the cabbage leaves and really it's just the cool packs and things like that. We're thinking of constriction um, to kind of help slow the flow and decrease the supply over time that way. That's super helpful. And I, I just, there's just so much about breastfeeding and all these things. And even if you're choosing not to breastfeed, you still need to know how to wean because your milk supply does come in. And, um, I remember I was like, okay, I think I'm ready to start weaning. And then I looked and I was like, oh, this takes like weeks. <laughs> this takes, this takes time. It's not just like your, your milk's just gone. And so I, I, there's just like all these parts of it, that you just have no idea and you don't really know how to prepare for it until you're in those moments. And so one other part of breastfeeding that for me, I think I personally, um, I wanted to be able to breastfeed, to have that bond and that connection with my child. And when it didn't work out the way that I thought it was going to, and I decided that what was going to be best for us was actually pumping and formula. And that was what worked for our journey. But I think a lot of women feel like in order to have the best connection with their child, that breastfeeding is the way for them to do that. And that when it also, if they are breastfeeding or if they choose not to breastfeed, you know, do, do they still, how do they still have that connection or how do we help women to know that like, you still are going to be able to connect with your baby. It's just a different form of connection that she'll be experiencing with them. Right. Um, the, I usually like to frame it as like feeding is more than nutrition, right? So when we're thinking about breastfeeding, it's not just about um, the calories that the baby's getting, right? But it's you holding the baby, you touching the baby, connecting, taking that time where external distractions aren't there. You're looking, eye gaze, you're connecting and all that can happen without the breast, right? You can do those exact same things with the bottle. So you can have your baby, um, you know, still skin to skin. You can still be focusing on eye connection and taking the time and, really making that uh, uh, an experience for the two of you. And so that can happen either way. And I really love skin to skin. Um, it's kind of the postpartum doula in me, but I really love co-baths for um, 
for parents and dyads because it really, especially if you had a not good birth experience, it kind of gives you this rebirth, I like to call it. But really just there's other ways that we bond with our baby besides just feeding. And so there's also very much attention, um, intentional type play that we can do with baby. Um, how are how are we helping babies with the routine of the day for naps and sleep, um, play? We're being we're still being attentive caregivers to our children, and so that's what's really going to build connection and really baby to know like they have an attentive, caring, loving caregiver. I love that. I I've talked a little bit about this on our social, but. Uh, because I didn't breastfeed and because maybe because I have two wild children, but they uh, are not super cuddly at all, even at one years old. And I have wondered that myself, like, is it because I didn't breastfeed and we didn't have that bonding experience that they might not feel that way towards me? And so I wish I would have been able to hear about things that I was doing and even some of those that I didn't do, but have, would have been good things to have done in the early days to help that bonding experience a little bit more. They might so, just cuddled oh, out. <laughs> I said they might just be cuddled out. They were cuddled in the womb for so long. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They just, now they just want to fight each other. <laughs> so we ask all of our guests this question. Um, embolden means to give someone the courage or confidence to do something or to behave in a certain way, to inspire, invigorate, revitalize, strengthen. What is the way you hope to embolden mamas? I really hope to, one, inspire moms to know that they are the best caregiver and mother to their child. Um, I mean, partners aside, you know what I mean? But they're like, they're there. But that they are, you know, this baby chose you, you, you grew this baby, you birthed this baby, um, you're caring for this baby. And that really, um, I try to use my, my zone of genius and expertise to be able to provide that inspiration and encouragement and empowerment to parents through the zone of infant feeding, hoping that it does trickle into all areas really of parenting. I love that. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It was seriously so awesome to get to hear about your story and the way that you empower women and their individualized journeys. And I think it's just such a great reminder to all the listeners and all of the moms that it is your own journey. It's nobody else's. And with that, um, thank you so much again, Darian. And thanks to all of our listeners for being a part of this community of mamahood in real life. We are so grateful to you. And we want you to know that we are here to support you day in and out. Make sure you hit subscribe or follow so that you catch every episode as it drops and head over to Instagram for embolden mama to be a part of our community. All of the resources that we talked about today will be linked in the show notes to make sure to head there until next time we'll see you on the next episode see you later